This is the Hindu on Books, a weekly podcast from India's national newspaper on the latest and the best from the world of literature. Hello and welcome to the Hindu on Books podcast. I'm Divya Kala Bhavani, your host for today. In this episode, we are excited to speak with Malcolm Gladwell, a journalist, an author, a podcaster, who knows what else. He is one of those names that pops into your head when you think modern literature. He penned six international bestsellers, including David and Goliath and Tipping Point. His latest book published by Penguin India right here in India is The Bomber Mafia, and it dives into the story of a squad of vibrant pilots who were in the U.S. Air Force during the 1930s. And Malcolm, you have described them as guys who wanted to reinvent war in idealistic ways to avoid mass casualties on, on battlefields. And thank you so much for taking time out of your day to speak with the Hindu. My pleasure. When working on the foundations for the Bomber Mafia, was there any stylistic approach you wanted to test here as a writer that you didn't before in previous books that you'd Put together. Yeah, this book is a real departure. You know, normally my books have been very oriented towards social science, and they have told multiple stories. You know, each chapter is usually organized around a different narrative. Um, I've never told a story that was one narrative before. So, and I've never told a story that was, there's very little, almost no social science in this book at all. It's a, it's a work of history and a, and a character study. Um, so in, at my grand old age, I have, I've tried something entirely new. And I, I must say, I, I really loved trying my hand at this kind of a book. And I just really wanted, more than anything else, listeners and readers to get to know these two extraordinary characters, Curtis DeMay and Haywood Hansel. That was, I just wanted you to sit inside their heads, um, see the world as, you know, through their eyes. Um, again, I've never had a, I've never written a book where my intentions were that simple. And I love that the book is divided into these two sections, the dream and the temptation. What was the strategy here? There's a, a biblical story when Jesus goes into the wilderness and is tempted by the devil. And the devil offers Jesus the whole world, if only he will, you know, transfer his loyalty. And I, I find that notion of a temptation to be an incredibly powerful narrative idea. Um, and it's a, you know, it's one that we're constantly presented with. Will we surrender our values in order f- to gain to gain something practical, something wealth, power? And that's what this story is about. It was the bottom mafia begin with a dream and then they are, the dream doesn't work out the way they want and they're tempted to abandon it and take up a wholly different strategy. I found that idea so uh, incredibly powerful and moving. You know, that's a, you know, internal conflict in a character is the engine of story. That's, that's what grabs us in any kind of complicated story. The Bonner Mafia has that internal conflict in spades. Wonderful. And, and getting into um, the characters with whom you were so fascinated, out of the characters or Figures, rather. The Bomber Mafia, you say, uh, you say you probably like General Haywood S. Hansel the most. 
someone who was just obsessed with bombing. Now, what exactly did you kind of reflect in yourself when reflecting on the the figures in this book? Because I imagine it's it's a very meditative process as a writer and a researcher. Yeah, I mean, it was the book has these two central characters, Curtis Lemay and Haywood Hansel. Haywood Hansel is the dreamer. He's the one who is part of this group of pilots who have this crazy idealistic notion that they can reinvent war. They can make war where civilian casualties are a thing of the past and where we don't have to destroy cities in order to defeat an enemy. And his antagonist is this man, Curtis LeMay, who is the opposite of a dreamer, who is the most kind of unsentimental, pragmatic realist. And, you know, I was very drawn to Hayward Hansel, I have to say. I recognized in him something that I uh, find very compelling about human beings, which is, I think, you know, the dreamers are the ones who propel civilization forward. They're the ones who push us to be different and better people. They're the ones who bring about technological revolutions, moral revolutions. But the realists are the ones who make things happen. You know, we need them both. And so here we have a story with both of these characters. I mean, both, you know, they're both necessary, but they couldn't be more different and they hate each other. And they're an act of competition, one of the grandest and most consequential stages of the Second World War. So it's just like, and I couldn't help thinking in writing this book about it, how we never escape that conflict. You know, we're we're in the middle of it today. We look around the world and you see how, how many of the problems we deal with are divided along these lines between the, the dreamers and the kind of ruthless ideal, or the ruthless realists. So that's why it, it seemed, the story seems so contemporary. And having said that, what about their journeys? I mean, if they were here today, if you had an opportunity to ask them one question, what would that be? Because I imagine having almost vicariously sat with them through these this journey, you would have questions. Yeah, I would ask them about their regrets. I mean, both of them, I mean, in a certain way, neither of them succeed. Haywood Hansel does not manage to make the dream of the Bama Mafia real. It's defeated over the skies of Tokyo. Curtis the Mate takes over, but he... What he does in the summer of 1945 is one of the most unspeakable acts of the 20th century. He basically incinerates probably close to a million Japanese civilians um, in the course, in the cause of winning the war. So I guess I would ask them both, is there something you would have done differently if you had another chance? I just would be curious to know, both of them must have spent some considerable chunk of the balance of their lives reflecting on those crucial years in the war and asking themselves whether they could have done something better or something different. I think that's a lot of, you know, what many of us would ask a lot of past um, figures and in, in conflict. I think a lot of us would definitely ask that question. Having penned as many books, articles, other written works you have had over the years. In the case of the Bomber Mafia, how did you know your work on it was done? Like, how do you know as a writer that, okay, this is the finished product before it gets sent off for the next stage? Well, you know, the there was a natural ending to, to this story, which was the bombing of Tokyo in March 1945, uh, which is the, the point at which the dreams of the Bomber Mafia die and the uh, 
temptation becomes real. And, you know, the war is almost over at that point. The war, you know, that Japan surrenders in uh, by the end of that summer. So I didn't feel there was any need to extend the story beyond that moment. It's rare that you get that the story you're telling gives you the perfect ending. But this one, there's nothing more to be learned about my two characters past March 9th, 1945. You know, Haywood Hensel has gone home in defeat. Curtis LeMay has enacted his new strategy and will for the balance of the war. So I, you know, I'm very conscious of the fact that when I write books that I don't like writing books that are overwhelming to the reader. I just, I think that just means people don't read your book. I think you need to respect the fact that a story has to have a certain economy. Um, and if you think about the fairy tales that we begin with as children, they're, they have this incredible economy. They don't go on forever. You know, you can read them in a single setting before you, before you go to bed. I mean, there's a certain kind of power that comes from that. And I, that's the kind of power I was interested in. Right. And that's part of what, you know, when you're escorting your reader or your listener in some cases, it's almost that intimacy and that control of the storyteller as well. Yeah. This book, you know, was intended to be an audiobook, first and foremost. Oh. Um, it was created as an audiobook. And audiobooks are different than printed works. They are, it very much is the feeling that I'm, I'm in your ears and I'm telling you a story. Um, it's very personal and intimate. And I think that means you want to, that changes the way you approach the story you tell. Right. And that said, I mean, moving from, you know, these, these resources that you were using, archival clips and um, other such mediums, to move that into, I mean, two-dimensional, for lack of a better word, medium, what was that like? Did you find, was it, was any part of that dissatisfying or? No, I mean, I think it kind of works. I mean, I didn't worry too much about it. I think that the transition that's difficult is the opposite way. To take a, a work on the page and turn it into an audiobook takes a lot of work and rethinking. But to take an audiobook and turn it into a printed book is not hard because we're used to the spoken word. Um, and to go back to the idea of fairy tales, fairy tales are meant to be read to you as a child. You know, they're written on a page in order to maximize their power in the spoken form. And that works. You can also read them on the page. You know, it doesn't matter. You just hear the voice in your head. I think there's something very natural about that kind of storytelling. Um, so uh, I don't. Read, it will read a little differently than certain books. It will read as very conversational. But I think that's fine. I think that one of the things that the kind of technological the digital revolution has done is it's made a lot of media forms of media a lot less formal. It's just broken down a lot of these barriers. And I think the kind of conversational nature of the book works. 100%. And, you know, you are the co-founder of podcast and audiobook house Pushkin Industries, which is known for its deep, deep dive approaches to you know, various subject matter from the likes of Hari Kunzru's Into the Zone and your own revisionist history. Uh, the Bomber Mafia has been also made into, you know, an immersive audiobook for readers out there. I mean, listeners out there listening, um, complete with sound effects, music, archival clips. Um, now, within revisionist history, you um, talked about 
potentially approaching fairy tales and, you know, going into, I mean, I, I saw an interview with Jimmy Kimmel where you were talking about The Little Mermaid. <laughs> now, I personally yeah. think that with the remake coming out um, pretty soon, what do you hope for people tapping into, you know, these economies of storytelling, but also making them better, making them a little bit more cinematic, but still retaining the essence of what that story is. Well, you know, one of the things that's happened recently with fan fiction is, you know, there's this whole kind of genre now with people who take um, existing stories and play with them. And I love that. I think that that's a kind of an acknowledgement that the characters that are created in fiction are real. They, they're not just, as you say, two-dimensional things that sit on the page. One part of the part of what's powerful and lovely about appreciating fiction um, is the notion that these characters are meaningful to you. And what fan fiction does is says you can take these meaningful characters and you can you can create your own worlds for them. And uh, that's what we're doing. We're doing this with The Little Mermaid is in my upcoming um, season of Revisionist History is we're just kind of taking the characters that were created by both Disney and Hans Christian Andersen. And we're just doing our own version of We're imagining a different ending for them, um, which is, you know, even though in my analysis of Little Mermaid, I'm sharply critical of the way that Disney ends that story. It's still a revision that's done out of love. I love the characters and I, I want to give them what I think is a more satisfying ending to their story. But in general, I love this idea that fans can not own characters, but can kind of create new worlds for characters. That's an affirmation to me of the power of, of storytelling. When you were growing up or even in your early days of writing, did you ever tap into any fan fiction? Um, this is my first experiment in that. Uh, so yeah, no, no, I, um, doing the, working in audio and doing my podcast for business history has, has just encouraged me to be a lot more adventurous. So I'm trying all kinds of things, like the Bomber Mafia, a new kind of storytelling, you know, I'm 57. Um, so at my grand old age, I'm suddenly, you know, uh, interested in going on all kinds of new adventures, um. So that's been a really positive thing about the turn that my career has taken. And speaking of being adventurous, um, for, budding, uh, for budding podcasters listening in on this, how do you encourage them to be adventurous while maintaining the essence of whatever podcast that they want to pursue? Yeah. Well, you know, I guess I would say that, um, that the form, the audio form, particularly the podcast, has very different um, critical rules than writing books. I feel like audiences are a lot more accepting of imperfection, of experimentation, of mistakes, of they're, they're in a mood to experiment. They're, the stakes are a lot lower, it strikes me. And so I would encourage processors, I think sometimes the mistake we make is we think that the world, the audience that we're dealing with is as unforgiving as the print audience. The print audience is a mature, that form has been around for hundreds of years. The critical infrastructure is very strong. Uh, we have high standards 
I think we have high standards of podcasts. I think we're I think we're there to have fun and enjoy ourselves and be challenged and try new things. And so understanding that the consequences of experimentation are the possible negative consequences are much, much, much reduced. I would just say people, I would say to people, just try crazy things. It's fine. It's not, it's not gonna end your career or close doors or make your fans unhappy. You're just gonna learn and people are quite happy to learn along with you. Wonderful. And um, listen, as you guys may not know this, but Malcolm Gladwell was credited as the guy who encouraged former President U.S. Uh, former U.S. President Barack Obama and former First Lady Michelle Obama to delve into podcasting. Um, can you talk about that conversation and the rapport that you've had with them? Because that sounds pretty interesting. Uh, well, no, I, you know, I, um, uh, uh, President Obama once liked, really liked a podcast that I did, and called me up one day and we chatted and then I went and had lunch with him um, in Washington. And I did, I said to him, you know, it's, a, I mean, it's hardly a novel suggestion, but you know, he's a man with an incredible following, fantastic voice, an interesting take on the world. I was just saying, you know, this is an incredible way to reach people. Um, and whether I was the one who was responsible for his decision to go into podcasting, I would. I was just. I'm sure I was one of many voices that said, "Look, this is a natural medium for you." And sure enough, you know, he's now trying his hand very successfully at podcasting. Wonder, and I'm, I, if that were the case, then he's probably had many lunches. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Our podcast listeners tuning in may ask, "How does Malcolm Gladwell deal with writer's block, especially during these trying times, compounded with work from home?" Do you care to share any coping mechanisms or tips that get you up, gets you out of a creative funk? Yeah, I don't really get writer's block. I'm, I mean, although I don't call it writer's block. I When I don't know whether something's going to work, I just keep going and then fix it later or give it to other people to help me. I, I, I think what writer's block really is, is an expression of perfectionism. It's the expectation that things have to be perfect. And when they're not perfect, we get frustrated and overwhelmed and we can't work anymore. I'm not a perfectionist. So I'm writing something right now. This morning I was working on it. Oh, it's one of my podcast episodes. I don't really think it works yet. I think it's not very good. But I think it may be pretty good by the time I'm finished with it. But that's just sort of four or five or six drafts away. And I'm, I'm going to have a... I'm going to read it for a group of my editors and friends on Thursday, and they're going to help me fix it. So it's like all all that is required of me is the willingness to expose a story to my friends that that isn't very good. You know, I just have to be humble enough and secure enough to show people things that are radically imperfect and just say to them before I start, you know, I don't think this is there yet, but I think we can get there if you help me. And we have that come those conversations all the time. And that makes it when you have that, when you have people who are willing to work with you and accept your imperfection, I think writer's block starts to become less and less of an issue. And I think that's a great way to wind things up. Thank you, Malcolm Gladwell, for your time speaking with the Hindu on Books podcast. Good, I really appreciate it. 
Thank you for listening to the Hindu on Books. You can now find the Hindu's podcasts such as In Focus and Parle on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other major platforms. Write to us with comments and feedback at socmed4 s o c m e d 4 at the rate thehindu.co.in. 